so Dan, I'm, I'm going to start. I bought with... them before they came out. Yeah, man, like that. When, the subscription. When I visited the, the Fantagraphics house and, and uh, looked in the old TCJs and saw like the very first ad for, you know, the very first one where Russ Cochran is basically soliciting people. And he's just like, I'd like to print them all. I think we'll start off with this one. If I remember yeah. right, like, did he start with Weird Science or, or Tales from the Crypt? It was Weird Science. Yeah, that feels so odd. Like, why would you start with Weird Science? Like, don't you... Everybody, Wallywood was, was like the big guy at the time. Like, the horror comics were really for a niche audience at that time, and everybody was into the science fiction stuff. So I think they just went, like, let's go for the wood. All right, welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Uncle Dan Klaus is in the house today for a shoot interview. Long time coming. Jimmy, lay down some of the bibliography and let's jump into things immediately. Well, I think everybody knows him from Psycho Comics, <laughs> Ugly <laughs> Family, <laughs> Judo oh, Joe. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, burst onto our scene with Lloyd Llewellyn and, of course, Eight Ball following shortly thereafter, uh, like a velvet glove cast in iron. Uh, Pussy, Art School Confidential, David Boring, Caricature, Ice Haven, Death Ray, Wilson, Mr. Wonderful, Patience, Ghost World. The one you, We could go on and on. The one you didn't say, though, man, is Ugly Family. And that's important to me because of that painting that was on the back of Ninja Number 4 from Eternity Comics. <laughs> Dan, how did that come about? Was that going to be a forthcoming Eternity comic? As I recall, we had some connection with somebody at Eternity Comics, and they were going to publish... Uh, like the Ugly Family, they were originally going to do uh, J.D. King's comic Twist. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Kitchen Sink wound up publishing it, and uh, and I remember like J.D. brought them all the artwork, and they wanted to slap all these really ugly logos on it, and like wanted to put in some of their own material. And it was just, he was just like, forget it, and so it all fell apart at that point. I don't think we, I mean, I never agreed to like draw a bunch of ugly family stories. <laughs> so it was complete, like, let's just put it on the back cover. I did this painting, may as well use it. It's been a while since I saw you, Dan. Uh, the last time was uh, in Gay Paris, your art show right. in, in Paris, uh, catching dinner at Lorenzo Matodi's house. Had what year was that? 2016? Uh, uh, Trump, Trump was fresh, fresh in office. Uh, it was the talk of everything. But uh, I finally got to got to pull your coat and uh you know we always everybody of my peer group would always kind of hang on to all of your interviews and read every everything you had to say verbatim and i remember you would talk about the lettering teacher at pratt he made a book he's the only guy that you uh got anything from you know from his class and i asked you the title of the book i get home order the book hold it up jimmy <laughs> and, yeah and uh this Gates forever this this is the very first thing that like I ever put out into the universe and I showed this off online after I got my copy of course and I said this is the book that Dan Klaus talks about that his teacher from Pratt hooked up and uh Dan for about a week and a half my Twitter accounts and my other social media all cartoonists showing off their copy of this book all right but then on the second week they were like I think mine's broken how does it work <laughs> I, I, I don't let her like Dan Klaus <laughs> So I love it. So, I love that. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the wisdom that he gave you, um, what you got from the material in this book, uh, maybe a, an anecdote from Pratt or two? I think for some reason that was a class you had to take. If you took illustration, you had to take display lettering, I think it was called. And 
everybody in the class hated the class. You know, they were all like, wanted to be conceptual artists, abstract artists, sculptors, things like that. And they were, uh, they're like, why do I have to learn to draw this stuff? You know, why can't I just use Letris set, which at the time, you know, the rub on letters. And uh, I, I couldn't have been more into it. It was like the one class that was something I wanted to learn to do for my own work. So I was like, Mr. You know, shining the apple and putting it on Gates's desk and like, yes, sir. Great. You know, I was like the only student he liked, I think, because I was total like hanging on every word and struggling. And I wasn't even that great at it. It took me a long time to, to like get the lettering right. But, um, but man, I took it very seriously. And it's, it's like the one class I think back on all the time and, uh, you know, apply the principles of, of how, how he was teaching lettering at the time. It's all, you know, very basic. It's all like he would, he taught it in a way that was like, there is only one way to do this and here it is. And there's so few things like that, you know, it's, and I'm sure there are other ways to do it. Obviously you don't even have to do it anymore. You could do it on a computer, but it's so much more fun to be able to, to make up your own fonts and, and bring them to life. Just, it gives you such freedom. Were you going through that program at the time, imagining that you were going to make comics? You know, was the lettering a part of a vision you had that you were going to make your own comics and lettering would be part of that process? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I went, when, when I first, um, when I was first looking to go to college, I just wanted to draw comics and, uh, everybody was advising me against it. That was back when, when, uh, you could, if you had good grades, you could get in just about any school you wanted to go to. And people were saying like, Oh, you should just try to go to like Harvard or Yale or something. And I was like, man, you know, I just want to draw comics. And I remember seeing ads in uh, maybe the comic price guide or the buyer's guide for like coming soon, the Joe Kubert school of comics. And I was like, I just want to go there. And my dad was like, you're not going there. Like, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> and so going to art school, like an actual, you know, accredited art school was sort of a compromise. But really, I'll, I just wanted to go to New York. I didn't care where I went. I just wanted to, to like, um, get out of Chicago. And I'd, I'd wanted to live in New York since I was eight years old, you know, and look through Mad Magazine. I was like, Madison Avenue. You know, that's... That was my dream. So one of the things that uh, we are promoting today is the complete eight ball soft cover. We made a video about it, and uh, the way that we position a video is like this: third time's a charm. If you didn't get the issues, if you didn't get the hardcover collection, uh, then you could get this no excuse. <laughs> super accessible soft cover collection uh, that collects the first, you know, the eighteen issues of of eight ball. And in prep for this interview. I read a lot of uh, Dan Clow's interviews and, you know, we always hang on your, your words of as like, you know, wisdom of our cartooning forefather, you know, and uh, your interviews have always been super important. And it was only when we become professionals where you start doing interviews saying, I wish I never did an interview ever because it's in stone and people think that that's still the way you think. And, and I often think that a lot of like when you say that it's regarding one 
specific interview that comes out around the time of the beginning of, of eight ball number one. And it's a young Dan Klaus full of piss and vinegar taking shots at everybody, all the big cartoonists of the day. Uh, and you, that, that interview has been printed elsewhere and it's copy edited, uh, to take a lot of that stuff out of there. And I just wonder, can you tell us about the, the Dan Klaus who, who, who started eight ball and, how how you evolve just as a as a thinker could because I feel like you might not believe some of the stuff that you said uh, about other cartoonists and things during that time. I mean, at, at that age, I was in my twenties. Everything I said was based on some kind of jealousy or like trying to trying to like figure out my place in the world. You know, back then there was no way to like know what anybody thought about you. So you, so anything that was perceived as like this guy doesn't like me or I'm not part of this world, it became very, uh, you know, it was it was like food for uh, mania. You know, you just become like sitting in a room, like you know, trying to stew over like who you know who likes me, who doesn't like me, and it was very factionalized in a way that um, I think is still the case with with people that age, but it, none of it had any meaning in terms of like the actual, my actual thoughts about anybody. It was all like positioning and, and sort of self-definition. I, I remember, uh, I remember when we, uh, when we first were making the ghost world movie and it was like up, up until that point, I had all these super harsh opinions about like actors and directors and cinematographers and stuff, just like these very like, um, you know, like look at me kind of opinions. And then the minute like you're introduced with like, oh, maybe this actor could be in your movie. You're like, oh yeah, they're like the greatest actor to ever live. <laughs> you know, like, or, or there are cases where you're like, no, I actually stand behind what I said, though I really don't like that actor. But, but you realize your true opinions when, when you're forced into that kind of situation. And so it was sort of like that with comics where I actually had to step back and go like, what do I really think about all this stuff? It does seem like there was some competition too. Cause like, I think even in that same interview, uh, you have Robert Crumb telling you specifically, like, you know, go, go away from comics for a little while. Uh, you'll, you'll figure it'll, it'll make you more worldly. You'll have something to make comics about. I remember, I remember he wrote that. To, he was like, I, you know, when I was your age, I really burned out. You should like take a step away, do something for like three years, go into ceramics, something like that. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, wow, how cool that he's like thinking of my career and he's giving me this advice. I wonder if I should do that. And I and I told Terry Zoigoff about it. He was like, oh, he's just jealous. He just wants you out of the picture. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but it was it was uh, it was such a you know like I went from like oh what a benevolent elder statesman to like wait is everybody out to get me? <laughs> My paranoia was was through the roof. You know, it, it makes me think like. Um... Again, as Ed said, you know, we've read a lot of these interviews and stuff, not just from you, but, but some of your peers. Comics, at least alternative comics in the 80s, feel like a very bleak landscape. Um, you know, it's before the graphic novel seems like uh, maybe we can get new readers that way or have a, have a healthy audience that way. And I wonder, because it's a very different world we live in today with comics where they're they win literary awards, they're in libraries, they're in schools now, you know, your teachers might not tell you not to do comics. You can make a living. Yes. Um, Dan, oh, yeah. do you remember, like, is there a moment when you feel that tide change 
Uh, it was never a moment. It was, it was just kind of a wave that happened. I mean, it was, it was slowly coming. I, re I remember I was always sort of on the side of like, well, logically, there's no reason comics shouldn't be valued above how they are by the general public. And I just thought like, if we could just do enough good comics and get them seen by, by normal people, that would happen. And I just always had that kind of uh, optimism that that was coming. And so um, like when I first did eight ball and, and Peter Bag started doing hate, you know, a couple months after that, and those started getting seen by people who didn't like comics, you know, who, who weren't necessarily interested at all in comics. They were like people who were into, you know, like the indie record world or independent movies or, or just like the normal readers of the alternative weekly in each town, you know, and it was, it was just like a different crowd started getting into the stuff and it was very pure, you know, there was, they had no reason to like it for anything other than that they actually liked it. So it felt really like, yeah, this is what I was talking about. And that just sort of steamrolled after a while, you know, it was, uh, at a certain point, like a 18 year old who liked the comics would graduate college, get a job as an art director and start hiring you for Entertainment Weekly to do an illustration or something. And it all just kind of snowballed like that. I remember Jack Davis talks in an interview about how he got all his early illustration work from people who read Matt and were like, oh, I could get that guy, you know, the guy who did those early Mad wacky drawings, you know, so it was it was similar to that. Because of uh, your 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 writing career, screenplays and stuff like like I don't know that that you never you've only ever made income just just from comics. But was there like a year during uh, putting Eight Ball together that you were doing mostly comics uh, to kind of keep yourself sustained? Uh, you know, in those early issues, you got the girly tie uh, paintings and and record covers. Whatever I could do to make a buck. I mean, for a year it was five or six years where I made nothing almost you know it was like a, uh, luckily it was the 80s where you could live on almost nothing you know i can't even imagine it now you know i could live on on 300 a month and survive you know and inconceivable now um and so i was just you know doing whatever i could think of that would make an extra buck or two like that but but i just wanted to do i wanted to do what i wanted to do you know i just felt like anything else was going to be a dead end. We're pausing this video to take care of some business. Jimmy and I are going to be doing some traveling. This last weekend in October, we are going to Baltimore Comic Con. That is the birthplace of cartoonist Kayfabe. We've only done a small number of shows since uh, things have opened back up, and each one has, has been increasingly bigger and bigger and bigger for us. The Baltimore Comic Con is a big venue. We expect big things, and we are going to be well prepared uh, to meet and greet you guys. Cannot wait to see you there last weekend in October. But these videos are brought to you by the comic books that we make. Uh, right now, I have on the stands Red Room Trigger Warnings, Red Room The Anti-Social Network, Trade Paperbacks. Uh, each of these books completely self-contained. Uh, each contains four issues of my Red Room comic series. So either one of these that you see on the stands, scoop it up, give it a read. You'll get a full experience. And with these book collections, you're getting 70 pages of extra material. I'm serializing my, uh, uh, I'm serializing the future Red Room comics 
right now today on my Patreon. Three bucks get you the archive there. I have links in the description below this video where you can order, pre-order, and hit up the Patreon. Jimmy, what do you have? Street Angel Deadly Scroll Live is back in print from Image Comics. This is available wherever you buy comics or books. Pick that up. Eight complete full-color stories of the homeless ninja on a skateboard. Perfect for any fan of superhero comics. And Hulk... <laughs> Hulk Grand Design, Monster Madness. Uh, these comics tell the 60-year history of the Incredible Hulk. They are both in print and available now at comic shops as long as they're still uh, in stock. And you can pre-order now the oversized collection that'll be out in early 2023 of Hulk Grand Design. This is a treasury-sized collection. There's about 40 pages of extra material, behind-the-scenes stuff, a lot of extra artwork. So pre-order that today wherever you buy books. Last weekend in uh, November, I'm sharing a table with Jeff Darrow at the Tokyo Comic-Con. I'm going to be out there digging for comics uh, for, for a couple of weeks there. Uh, so if you're in town, if you have a scoop on any cool art shows or anything like that, let me know. We're done paying the bills. Let's get back to Dan Klaus. That's one of the great things in these eight ball reprints is that all of that extra material is included. It's one of the great things I think in the original issues, like seeing, you know, you would have that page of back issues or if there were collections out, but also things like the girly ties. And I always loved those pages. They always stood out to me as whenever I was going to start making comics, like you make all the pages, you know, it, whether it's an advertisement or a letters page or whatever. It was one of the details in eight ball that really kind of changed the way I looked at comics is like, every page matters and it can be from your hand. In the, in Lloyd Llewellyn, I remember Kim Thompson told me like, you have to, you have to have, you have to give us the back cover and an inside page for advertising. And I was just accepted like, well, that's the rule. Everybody has to do it, you know? And so I just let them do that. And then I would look through the issues and go like, God, I hate these fucking ads they throw in here. Like, why does, why can't I do a color back? That's like one of the only color pages and I can't do it. I have to have an ad for prime cuts, you know? And, uh, and so with eight ball, I was just like, I'm doing everything. I don't care. Did Gary and Kim, did they influence you much from an editorial standpoint or was it just kind of hands off and up to you to create, you know, your vision? <laughs> Kim was, I would call Kim a retroactive editor where he would, like you turn in the issue and he wouldn't say anything. And then you turn in the next issue and he'd go like, well, I really like this issue. So now I can say I didn't care for the previous one. <laughs> that kind of like, oh, thanks. I never will trust you again. <laughs> <laughs> and you immortalize that in a cartoon uh, in some of the frontispiece of, of the new uh, soft cover. Captured him yeah. great. You also mentioned uh, Alvin Buenaventura, who I associated you with a... Uh, Alvin for a number of years there. Uh, let the people know about Alvin. You know, we shouldn't forget about the guy. And he did a lot of cool stuff. Oh, no. Alvin was a singular human being. I mean, he was unlike anybody I ever met. He was, uh, he was a very strange dude. And he, uh, he just had perfect taste, which is very rare. Anything he would, you would discover some young cartoonist, how he found him, I don't know. And he would say, yeah, you got to read this stuff. And you'd look at it, look at the cover. And, ah, I don't know about that. And then you'd read it and go, oh, he figured it out again. Another great one. He was never wrong. Um, and he, uh, his, his like calling in life is he wanted to be uh, like, like help artists, you know, like he just wanted to be there for artists. And there, you can talk to any artist uh, of my generation or younger almost who they all had some dealings with Alvin where he would buy, you know, 
prints off of them or, or commission them to do a print or sell stuff in his shop or help him with a project. And he, uh, he just like took it upon himself to help me do stuff. I didn't, I, in a way I almost didn't want it. And in, in a way he actually, by helping me, he took up more of my time than if he hadn't helped me. Cause he was the most incredibly slow person I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and so he used to be like, he'd come over and he would be like helping me scan. And I would think like, I'm, I'm like just sitting here talking to him while he scans, but I could scan so much faster than he could, <laughs> but I just loved, loved having him around. And, uh, you know, he tragically took his own life. He was a very depressed character, but, um, but he, ne I never thought it would quite go, go to that degree. He always seemed to bounce back when and I still stay can't believe he's gone. Cause he was, he was exactly the kind of person who very often would, um, you'd be in the middle of some big project and he'd call you up and he'd go like, uh, I just uh, shaved my head and I'm moving to Tibet for eight months. So you're gonna have to finish this on your own. And you'd go, what, wait, what, really? And then eight months would pass. And then he would show up again, like, hey, and they're like, are we still working on that thing? And you're like, wait, wait, what? And so to this day, I still, I have dreams all the time where Alvin comes back and I have to go like, I had to deal with taking care of all your stuff you left behind. <laughs> like, do you know, <laughs> like I'm mad at him for sticking me with all his uh, crap I had to deal with at his place in Oakland. When we were uh, at your art show in, in Paris uh, and, and, you know, the sold stickers are going up on things, uh, it would be even it would be like roughs and things that you did with just Sharpie on on tracing paper sometimes. And I remember you, you sort of, we were in a corner and you were like, that's the kind of stuff Alvin would rescue from my trash can. Like I, I just would throw that stuff away. Yeah, for years I would, I'd do, you know, three roughs for a cover and I'd keep the, the good one and crumple up the other two and throw them away. Cause I didn't want to be like filling my drawers with shit basically. All of and your Al fans are Al like pulling out their hair right now hearing <laughs> that. Alton was like, what are you doing? And he would like pull them out of the, you know, smooth them out. I think he did tell me he actually once like came by and went through my garbage. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Jimmy? Dan, tell us, tell us in the audience some horror stories when, when you, you undersold artwork at like WonderCon or something like that. Man. <laughs> no. I, like like uh, I mean, $100 you know, eight ball one covers or something like that. I did. A, I didn't ever do that. Oh, but good. I, not, not eight ball. I actually traded eight ball one to Jaime for a great page. Nice. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I sold a lot of stuff. The thing that chills me is, um, like the books are much more valuable if you have every page, obviously, once they're broken up, they're just, you know, they're the, the individual pages, not the whole book. And when I first did the first ghost world story, I went to some comic convention and I had the first two pages for sale in a pile. And I was like, I don't know, I kind of like this story. I had no idea I was gonna keep doing it at that point. But I was like, man, I'm gonna price these a little higher. And so I think they're like 150 a piece. And they were just sitting there and people went through the pages and they bought, they would buy like a hundred dollar page, but they're 150, that's too steep. And then when I got home, I was like, I shouldn't sell the, I should hang on to these. And so, you know, thank God, nobody, nobody got those. 
I remember that the guy who taught me all about selling art was Bob Burden. He had all these great tricks of where it would be like you price, you have like 10 exactly the same pages and you price nine of them at one price. And then the 10th one you price either a little higher or a little lower and that one will always sell. <laughs> and it was so much fun to try it out just as a psychological experiment just to see if it worked and it, it always did work. I remembered you you would have in the back of eight balls like the uh, send away for your art list. And I always thought that was interesting, um, you know, like that you were selling art and you were kind of that was new to me, mm -hmm. you know, as a reader. And it seemed like you were ahead of the curve a little bit on that front. And, you know, I have no question out of that. But it was interesting <laughs> that you had like a, you know, write to me if you're serious. Right. If you really want to buy some art, here's my list. But. Yeah. Send me a buck and I'll send it to you. At a certain point, I made it. It was like a dollar for yeah. the catalog because I didn't want just people who were like, well, this might be cool to have. You know, I wanted it like you have to at least have a dollar, <laughs> like be willing to, to spare that much. But yeah, it kept that kept me in business for a long time, that catalog. It's, it's funny. I still have my, I had like my master copy where I'd write down every buyer for it. And it's a lot of like, you know, you go through it and it's like, oh, Bob Odenkirk, you know, it's like famous people back in the day. Those people would show up uh, writing introductions for for your your books and things uh, back in the 90s when it was sort of the piecemeal uh, eight ball material. And it would be Simpsons writers, like high level people. It, it, it felt like um, what they would just talk about the, the audience for Seinfeld early on where uh, it's not like millions and millions of people watching, but it's like an expensive audience. And the people who uh, were into eight ball, it was like the tastemakers and the people who could, you know, move, move an audience and, and help sell more copies. I never heard about a lot of it. You know, you, years later, you know, you'd hear, I would hear secondhand you know, it's like, Oh, Amy Poehler was really into eight ball or just something like, you know, some random, person like that and you think like well how would I I would have never known that but it would have meant a you know a ton to me at the time and you know uh hearing it later it's not as not as impactful Dan I want to talk a little bit of of some process and maybe a little bit of I don't know nuts and bolts kind of stuff and one of the questions I have is about format you seem to be more conscious of the format of what you're presenting. Um, you know, eight ball was comic books and then you get away from the comic book format as you get into graphic novels, but you're also serializing work at times, things like Mr. Wonderful or Ice Haven that is then reformatted as a hardcover book. Can you talk a little bit about format and how that fits into your creative process? Is that something you think about early on? That's really the first thing I think about, you know, is like it's all, I think of it, kind of like a sculpture in a weird way where it's uh, like, especially with this book, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to do just have this brick of comics? You know, I loved that as a kid where you'd find some weird uh, crappy reprint of like Whitman comics that was in some giant chunk of horribly printed newsprint and you just read random funny animal comics with no idea what you were, but, but just the, the promise of like, gotta be something good in this huge brick and and this will keep me busy for like an afternoon whereas you know i remember buying as a kid buying like richie rich comics or casper the friendly ghost or something like that and you'd get it you'd like get it in the grocery store and then you're like driving home in the back of the car and you'd 
read all of them like by the time you got home and then you're like well what am i going to do the rest of the day <laughs> there's my 80 cents down the tube and so i love that idea of just a chunk of endless comics and so so i always start with that that goal in mind like the book and i have a vision of how this book is going to look and uh, sometimes that changes sometimes uh i often i often have plans for books that i like i often want to do like a separate edition of my graphic novels that's like on terrible newsprint that looks like a like an uh you know 80 page archie's pals and gals or something like that but they just like they don't even make newsprint anymore you know it's like you just can't do it so you know i never do it i think about specifically something like eight ball 19 um you know the the david boring is i think 1920 and 21 and again yeah. these are the first 18 issues comic book size and then you go to like a slightly bigger format um what was the thought behind you know that that decision I think I was, I felt kind of cramped by drawing, you know, you, 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 when you're drawing in this kind of thin comic book format, you have to do the tall, thin panels a lot. And I wanted, I just wanted more space in the, in the actual original art, as opposed to the page, you know, you can make the originals bigger, but then it reduces so tiny that you can't even see what's going on when it's, when it's, uh, uh, you know, reproduced. So I, I just, I just wanted space. I don't know that I had a necessarily like a image in mind. I also knew I was going to do it in three parts and I wanted it to be like a year long cliffhanger. Like I like the end of the first episode is a bullet coming at you and then you got to wait a year for that bullet to hit. And I, I just thought that was such a mean trick to play on the reader that I enjoyed doing. The other uh, thing in, in terms of comic books that I wanted to ask you about is I can remember and I don't know the exact interview where this came from, but you were talking about comic books. The format is like fetish objects. It would have been around 2000 or so that I encountered this idea from you. I wonder if that has changed any, if you still think of the uh, comic book in that way. To me personally, it absolutely is. I mean, I just, I, uh, there's nothing I love more than just like going through my box of comics. Like, you know, that like I'm, they're very fetishized. And every once in a while, I'll go through like my old Marvel comics I collected when I was a kid, and I'll and I'll be like, oh, I don't have Spider-Man twelve. I should buy a copy of that. But now, now you can't just buy a copy of an old comic because it's all they're all slabbed, which is antithetical to me. Like I just want to, I want to actually like take it out and be like, I'm reading this old comic, even though I know that's like reducing the value by hundreds of dollars every time I turn the page. You know? <laughs> That aspect of it. So uh, speaking about those comics, like like what what kind of comics have you held on to? I've held on to like every comic I had as a kid up till about age twelve or thirteen, and then at a certain point when I was like thirteen or fourteen, it's like nineteen seventy four seventy five. Comics were just terrible. Like it was like the worst era in the history of comics. You know, there was Kirby and Ditko were still doing stuff, but all the other guys had kind of faded out. Undergrounds were kind of dead. You know, there was arcade, but that I'd never seen that as a kid in Chicago. You know, and it it was uh, it was just felt dead. It felt like guys who were um, you know fans of 
early Marvel comics took over and then fans of the fans took over for them. And it was just felt so stultifying. So I, but I dutifully bought every single comic after that, you know, I would just buy every Marvel comic because I had a, I had a friend who worked at a newsstand in Chicago and he, he got a discount from this newsstand. So it, it was, uh, for very cheap, I could get every single comic that came out every month. And, uh, and I would just dutifully like put them in a bag, file them in a box and never look at them again. So, uh, last year I actually wound up, uh, just trading. I traded like, I don't know, 10 boxes of these old comics to a comic store in Chicago for, I think 15 old comics. They hit us up about that. Uh, they were, they were like, do you want to hang on to Dan Claus collection and, and do some videos on that? <laughs> and the, and the one that I was interested in would have been the, uh, I don't know if you, you gave this to them, but, uh, you see the weird, like the Russ Cochran's behind me. And I remember oh, you saying I, I, that there was a, you got two weird sciences and colored one of them with color pencil or something. Is that one you got rid of or you held on to that? It was, uh, I, as I say, I, I pre-ordered weird science like I couldn't have been more into it when it was coming out and so I got my copy in the mail and I was couldn't have been more excited or no I'm sorry this is opposite actually before I got my copy in the mail I went to the comic convention in Chicago 1975 maybe and uh and Russ Cochran was there and I was like oh my god you've got the weird science box and he's like well did you order it and I was like yeah and he I don't even think he looked at my looked up my name or anything he was just like well here you go and I was like, holy shit, you know, I got my, and I took it home. And, uh, and then like a week later, I got another copy in the mail. And I was like, so like, didn't want to, didn't want to like ruin my standing with Russ Cochran that I wrote him a letter. I got two copies. I'm happy to send this one back. And he was like, ah, just keep it. So I had this deranged plan. Like I'm going to color an entire set of these with colored pencils. I don't know what I was thinking. And so I did, I think, one panel or two panels. And then I was like, this looks horrendous. Like, forget it. And so, yeah, so I gave the Chicago comics guy my my colored set. That's funny. Not enough panels, though. See, that'd be worth tracking down if it was like a whole book worth. Yeah. Was that your first encounter of the EC Comics? No. my. I always think like my primal comics experience like the thing that got me the most excited was there was a book by woody gelman nostalgia press called like the horror comics of the 1950s i think you probably see it on the shelf it's, like in the middle it's uh it's oversized book weirdly recolored um but it had all the great guys in it it had first time i ever saw bernard krigstein first time i really saw like wally wood saw like my world you know Hollywood um Graham Ingalls who you know I was a big Bernie Wrightson fan and then to see Ingalls it was like holy shit that's where he got everything from this d diseased man <laughs> those are when I look at Ingalls I think like there there's something absolutely wrong with this guy's brain those are so twisted so beautiful um Reed Crandall, just all these guys, and and it and just the format of these eight-page stories that were about like domestic squabbles turned violent, and and um, you know, just ridiculous horror plots, kind of smart science fiction for what I was used to reading. It, I just it changed my life, and it was uh, it was for there was a bookstore in Chicago, Crocs and Burntano is this big 
uh, mainstream bookstore, and I, they, for some reason, had a copy for sale. And I would go there every week and sit on the floor and read a story. But the book was like 25 bucks, and I just I couldn't do it. But one day, I was like mowed lawns or something and just scraped together the money, and I went in and bought that one copy. And it, I, I looked at that. I still look at that book once a week, probably. Would you have been attracted to like the flash of a Wally Wood over uh, a Krigstein? Was Krigstein ugly to you to start and then you see what he's doing later or from word go, you were a Krigstein guy? Um, I feel like Krigstein, like there was just something about it that you could tell this guy was on a different level than everybody else. You know, he was thinking about it in a different way and it was just... Um, like Wally Wood was was the consummate comic artist, and he came out of that whole tradition of of you know Alex Raymond and all those guys, and he was drawing in that style and just taking it to this insane degree of like effort and and uh, detail and um, just energy. And but Krigstein was like there was something about it that felt like this is a path to something different you know, like a different way of doing comics. And that's, I was really curious about that at the time. And all his stories looked like they were done by somebody else, you know, like a different artist. Did you seek him out when you were in New York? Because I, I think he was teaching somewhere when you were going to Pratt. He was teaching at the high school of art and design. And at Pratt, we, like half our freshman class were kids from high school of art and design. And I would go, did you have Mr. Krigstein? And they would all go like, oh, yeah, oh, God, the worst, you know, and, and just hated him. And so, of course, that made me think he was probably even greater than I imagined, because whoever these guys hated would have been, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so he, uh, yeah, he was there. and But everybody was like, he just does not want to talk about comics. And I just didn't want that experience. You know, I just kind of had a feeling of, I could just see how it was going to go. Like, I love your comics and just have them. Ah, he, no, don't get into comics. I just didn't want that. Well, here's another question. Did you ever knock on the Steve Ditko door? Oh, yeah. I did a whole comic about that for that was going to be in the New Yorker and they rejected it. But um, yeah, I had, to, I had to. I mean, back then, I was thinking about this just the other day. There used to be a place like a telephone office somewhere in Midtown Manhattan where you could go and they had every yellow pages for like every city in America. And so you could just go like, oh, let, let's see if, let's see if any comic artists live in this city. And you could look up and you're like, oh, there's Mark Drucker. He lives in New Rochelle, New York or whatever. And, uh, but in, in Manhattan, when I first moved, you know, I got the white pages and I'm looking, I just looked up every artist I could think of. And I, and I remember thinking like, well, Ditko's not going to be in here. He's a recluse. He's like, it's and you look it up and it was like Steve Ditko, artist. And he lived um, he lived on 42nd Street above this place called Show World Center, which was just like the most debauched, you know, taxi driver era, uh, you know, like video booth, old school porn theater. And um, and so I just went I went to the building just to see his name, to see if he, in fact, did live there. I just wanted to see his name like on the on the you know directory out in the building and i remember i i just go in there and i'm like oh my god it's him and and there was a this like 
doorman who was in my memory was like Elisha Cook Jr. You know, just this total like Hollywood casting uh, doorman in a little uniform, ill-fitting uniform. And he was like, who are you looking for? And I was just like, well, I'm just, I'm a big fan of this guy, Steve Ditko. And I just see he lives here. And the guy's like, well, you should go. If you're a big fan, I'm sure he'd love to meet you. Why don't you come on up? And I asked him, like, have you ever met him? And he's like, I can't say that I have. I don't think I've ever seen him. And so next thing I know, I'm like in the elevator with this overeager doorman heading up to, you know, the seventh floor or whatever it was. And so I, I was, you know, having second thoughts about this, but I thought, well, may as well go through with it. So I get to Ditko's door. He's got a little plaque outside, S. Ditko. And so I just tap on the door. I'm like, and the doorman's kind of waiting down the hall, like, like my mother, like real expectantly, you know, like, hmm, like what's going to happen? And and so I tap, and the door opens, like chain length, and I see this man. You know, I had no idea what he looked like. Never seen any image of him. And I just, and he goes, "What do you want?" And I remember thinking, like, wow, like he said, "Yuz." You know, it's like I was like, what is that? When you see that in old comics, like, what is "yuz"? They don't say that in Chicago. You know? And, uh, and I, I just went like, are you Steve Ditko, the comic artist? And, uh, and he slammed and he was like, get the fuck away, you know, get the hell away. And, uh, and that, and I, and the doorman was kind of like, oh, oh, well, and we wrote down in silence. But, um, but I, but I got this like burned onto my retina, the image of like little sketches on his wall and stuff behind him. That's and, you great. know, of course, like Gary Groth used to just go there all the time and hang out, you know, it's nothing. But to me, it was this like glimpse into the sun, you know. You always have to take the shot, man. Like I remember my first uh, New York trip, man, went up to the spot because the name was still in the book. And uh, there wasn't even a doorman. You could walk your ass up to that. It's probably the same plaque. Tap a couple of times and then maybe you get in, maybe you, but you got to take the shot. Yeah. Dan, did you find other uh, aspiring cartoonists when you were at Pratt? Like, did you have a peer group there? Well, I had my my good buddy Rick Altergott I met, and we were in the same freshman, like, foundation class. And uh, and we immediately became, like, super close friends. He was, he was, like, the most incredible artist I'd ever met when I first met him. Mean, he still is, but when I first met him, he, he very shyly showed me these... Uh, mimeographed literally mimeographed like on with a blue ink on shitty paper these uh this like humor magazine he did in high school where he did these perfect mort drucker parodies of like tv show i remember there was one of he did a parody of the tv show marlon perkins wild kingdom which was just like a nature show that was on every week and uh and he just did it perfectly and it was hilarious and it was like it was just like one inch away from being as good as Drucker. And like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, I was just like, who is this guy? Like doing this stuff when he was probably 16 years old. Um, so yeah, he was, he became a very good friend. Was was Gene Fama in that class also? I say that just because of the psycho comics thing. Uh, I think I he shows up. School. I went to high school with, or grade school with Gene Fama. Oh, wow. He was my best friend in like fifth grade, yeah. Yeah, because he had the chops. Like when you look at uh, Psycho Comics, like uh, you could see a little bit of what Rick Alter got grows into being. You could see very little of Dan Klaus in yeah. there, maybe a little glimmer. But uh, Gene Fama felt the most formed. Yeah, he was he was good in like fifth grade. He was really good. 
Didn't do a lot of comics, though. Yeah, the Denny Ihorn, like uh, real life, real stuff. Yeah, I think he did um, maybe Little Shop of Horrors later for Roger Corman comics. Does that really? sound right? Yeah, I, don't, I haven't talked to him in 20 years or more. A, a name I have to ask you about, uh, Ken Langriff. Did you, ha did you ever meet Ken Langriff around that time period? I did. I can't remember how, but somehow uh, my friend Mort Todd and I got went to Ken Langreff's studio once and, and talked to him. And I, I have no idea how that happened, but it was very memorable. Dan, I got to go grab something, man. Just bam for a second. <laughs> you got to see this. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think I know what Ed's going to grab. And uh, <laughs> Langreff is, is an interesting cartoonist. You know, like we often look at um, like 80s explosion kind of comics, you know, those self-published kinds sure. of comics. And Langriff did a bunch of books in that time period, like um, New York City Outlaws is, is probably that. one of the I've big ones. I bought them all from him at tables at New York conventions. And I think he assisted uh, Wally Wood, you know, to, to kind of give some idea to anybody at home who isn't sure who we're talking about, but an interesting uh, indie guy. And if they need a visual aid... <laughs> Check Amazing. out that piece right there, man. <laughs> you still got it, man. You know, when you examine it close, it's not Zipatone. He prints it up on white paper and then uh, puts that <clears throat> down before he inks. So he cuts out his areas of where he wants to zip, and then he'll ink over top of that paper that's pasted up here, like the chess piece and things. <laughs> Actually, no, I know even more funny facts about that, which is... Uh, there was a movie in the 70s, I think, maybe early 80s, called This Is Elvis. And the cover to the soundtrack album is a photo of Elvis with the half tone jacked way up. So it's it looks like a graduation tone, like a zip tone where the dots are huge. And Ken would Xerox that face on This Is Elvis and use little parts of Elvis's face in shading. And so it became a game for us where we, oh, it's a new New York Outlaws. We'd look through, hey, there's Elvis's ear. You know? <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. He was a real, like, folk artist. Yeah, for sure. It's nearly Henry Darger. Let me, for the people at home, <laughs> let me see, look at, look at Jim's pecs <laughs> and my male upper thigh. Yeah. There's it's... some story, story in an old Comics Journal interview where, uh, with Harvey Kurtzman, where he talks about Ken Landgraf coming to his house. Do you read this? Where, uh, where he, Kurtzman had all these like bound copies of frontline combat and stuff like that. And after dinner, you know, he told Ken, you know, you're welcome to stay the night. You know, you can, I'm going to bed, but you know, feel free to read any of these books. And he, uh, he gets up the next morning and Ken's just still there reading like, you know, some issue of two fisted tales. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us learned about his work in that, in the studio book from you you know our magazine yeah it was one of those pieces I was, I was obsessed with dr peculiar you know that was my that was my thing yeah yeah that's an odd that's that's an odd book and an odd story there with john jacobs the uh the writer behind that one but ken Rick, Rick I, we were supposed to have a story in the third issue of dr peculiar that never happened we actually did a story like in that style that has never been published who's we yeah and why, what are we waiting yeah, on and alter god Rick Altergott. We yeah. need we need that story to be released. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't know where the Rick might have the original, so I got to see if I have a copy. But yeah, I feel like you have some clout at Fanographics now. You could probably get that get that story in print somehow. <laughs> I could get it in uh, 
in uh, now. <laughs> Dan, you talk about like uh, you losing interest in, say, Marvel DC Comics or that being a bad period, you know, in the late 70s. What are your prospects for like getting into the comics field at that time? Were there was there a model? Was there something you were looking at as like, this is the way to do it or this is what you wanted to do? Yeah. What brings you back? Nothing. I never went away, but I think my thought was, um, you know, there was stuff around the periphery that seemed promising. You know, there were, you had no idea like how much money anything pays or makes, you know, it was all anything printed. You're like, that's a job, you know? So there'd be these, uh, magazines like star reach, you know, that were sort of like, not quite, uh, you know, they weren't mainstream. They're kind of, they're not quite what I wanted to do, but it just felt like, well, something like that, maybe there's a niche in there I could fit in or national lampoon always had great comics. Um, that comic section is really underrated as a, as a venue, you know, that when it was still a good magazine, that felt like a great possibility. Um, that was what, all my teachers in high school, when I would do mean drawings of them, they would, that was always like, oh, you're going to wind up drawing for National Lampoon. Um, you know, and I still thought maybe I'd work for MAD or something like that. Or, But I also imagined like, maybe I could, maybe I just like make a living inking, you know, Daredevil or whatever. You know, I had no idea what was going to come along. I think when, uh, when Heavy Metal came out, Again, that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, but it felt like there's that's a, a door opening to something different, you know. So that uh, that felt like like a possibility, and you know, and I love the underground comics, but I just it felt like those were dying out. You know, it was back then all the headlines would be like head shop busted, you know, like going out of business. You know, it just felt like okay, that's that's not going to happen. Would have been great if you could have found those uh, going out of business head shops and just bought boxes of undergrounds. Amazing. Think, yeah, we we did do that a few times. There used to be a great head shop in New York when I first moved there, where all the comics were hanging from ropes on a clothespin, and just like and the guy would like weed through it and go like, "Oh, I need you know, Bijou Four or whatever." And here it is, you know. So eccentric. Behind you, uh, not like sort of laid horizontally. Is that a whole bunch of artist editions? Down there. Yeah. 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 And what do we got there, man? We got the Mads. We got probably all the ECs. Uh, do you got any guilty pleasure ones there? <laughs> Jim Starlin, perhaps? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, no, it's all just uh, Mad, Davis, EC, Wallywood, Wolverton, Peanuts, um, yeah, that feels like a dangerous. I have the, Kirby. I have the Kirby ones, like the Thor one, and uh, the random one is really great. And that feels like a very dangerous place to keep it right next to the drawing table because you crack one of those open, and, and two three hours goes by. It's true. I I've actually like where I, when I really wanted to channel the the vibe of a certain artist, I've actually like opened the book and put my paper like next to it and draw like as though I'm inking like part of a of a Reed Crandall story or something just to just to feel in it you know I, I love those if I had gotten those books when I was 16 I would have not gone to art school there's no point that's all I wanted to know 
Yeah, and all, the, all your interviews, like you t there's the conversation comes up, and usually the interviewer is a civilian, so they don't understand. Like that's the th when you're talking about the brush and 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 how to achieve that line. Like they're just like whatever. But like, that's where you get to see the line. That's where you get to actually figure that out. And it's so different. And it's so illuminating because stuff that looks perfect when you see the original, you're like, ah, he, he, my, like my line isn't any less perfect than that you know like it's it's very shaky but it's somehow he knows what it's going to look like when it's yeah yeah talking to a normal interviewer about original art is they just think you're like they have no idea you may as well just talk about hieroglyphics or something you've always struck me as a collector dan and, and maybe somebody that looks through culture and finds the interesting parts as you say for comics you know like around the edges there were some interesting things are you still a collector today? Uh, is there anything out there that you haven't found that you're looking for these days? I'm, you know, I am, I'm very into like my stuff, my collections of stuff, you know, it's, uh, it gives me great joy to just like dig through boxes of stuff I forgot about in my basement and, uh, and, you know, find something I hadn't seen in years, but it, it, there's very little like that I, that I don't have that I, you know, that I'm like looking for somehow eBay and auctions and things kind of killed that. So now it's like, I'm always looking for the thing I don't really know about, you know, like when I go into a used bookstore, I'm just hoping for that thing that I've never seen, you know, and that's, it's hard to do that when you're, when you're searching on eBay where you're, you have to like narrow it down to something you already know, about. you know, you don't get that. The other thing that I, I can't not ask you about, there is a magnificent, <laughs> a lot of <laughs> magnificent looking pile of, of paper over your left shoulder there. That's how we'll close it out, right? You're going to show us all the new book? <laughs> yes. Would you like to announce what that is? We're going to break some news on Cortunus Kayfabe? That is a new book. I, I'm not allowed to say any more than that. But um, yeah, that's it. Here's the compromise, uh, Uncle Dan. When, <laughs> when, 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 whenever, whenever the book comes out, will you come back and... Uh, chat it up and we could direct people to uh we'll see we'll to buy see. the thing can't make any promises how many views do we have to get this video <laughs> to guarantee yeah. that you gotta sell some units of product i have to show, i have to show you uh so i'm sure you guys uh recall the episode of uh ghost world that was printed in orange by accident so there have been a sort of a litany of printing errors in eight ball throughout there's a lot of them that um that i don't i don't have never talked about like there were runs of issues that we had to destroy completely because the ink was so heavy you couldn't even like see people's eyeballs and stuff so uh so i get so i get my uh i get my new copy of this book and i'm looking at the spine and i'm like why in the hell did i pick this purple color for the spine and I'm like, that just looks horrible. Why did I do that? And then I looked at my files and I realized I actually, it's supposed to be light blue and they accidentally overprinted. So I actually printed out like my own fake spine because I can't stand <laughs> to look at it. So this is how it should have been. And then this is, this is what happened. So it's just, a, it's just the curse of, of uh, eight ball. Man, that is rough. Dan, was that a mistake in the way you guys had set up the files? That seems like a 
like a big deal having a misprint on a cover, like something the printers. It's pretty major. It really like, like I was so excited when I saw the cover, it came out perfect. I was like, oh, the the little like spot varnish and everything. And then I saw that spine and I was just like, I don't even care anymore. (laughs) That's tough. I I often say now spines are the new covers, you know, uh, as you're browsing on shelves. The most important thing there is. That's all I think about. I think about like my whole goal is to, have a book on a used bookstore shelf that some kid in 2065 when of course there will be no used bookstores but goes into this mythical bookstore and is like what's that you know oh, this is interesting and like and then all of a sudden there's that connection over the decades that i've had being the kid pulling the book off so many times and so the spine is huge it's going to be an interesting context that that some new people will have uh, with this book because, you know, you could print that it, it contains eighteen issues of a comic all you want, but there will still be people who will see this as a as a book called Eight Ball. So it's like a decade's worth of stuff wrapped up in in one spine. It it almost feels like when you're when you're like a kid in your twenties and you're moving house and all 23 years of your belongings fits in like five boxes and you're like, holy shit, this is my whole life. Like this is a big chunk of time. And one of the things that uh, really fascinated me, fascinates me about the three different uh, flavors of, of these eight ball comics, the issues, the hardcover and this, this soft cover, it is three completely different reading experiences. Uh, those single issues and having, uh, you know, this big chunk and it like, it, it really, you could, you could um, imagine the toil and all the work that that goes into it, but then when you get the the single volume, it's almost like it was uh, being built f- for that from day one in a certain way. Really, I you know I can't I can't imagine the experience of reading it like that. You know, it's all just too close to me. So I, it was funny. My son had never read um, any of my comics uh, till recently. And I just was like, hey, you know, you're old enough here. And I just gave him the stack and this had just come out. So I gave him that. And he's very dutifully read every single thing, which I was very proud of, because normally he would just push it aside. But he uh, it took him so long to read that complete eight ball. You know, he was reading like half an issue a day for like an hour. And it was just hours and hours till he finally finished. And it was really that was really uh, something because, you know, when we would these would come out as comics. You see people reading it in line at the comic store and get almost to the end, you know, and like, I guess I'll still buy it. Before we get out of here, uh, do you want to let us know who Dan Pussy was based on? It wasn't a specific person. You know, it wasn't. The name came from a friend of mine actually went to college or high school with a kid named Dan Poos, called it Pusey, spelled that way. And, uh, and of course, you know, was tormented <laughs> and such. That was too good of a name. Um, it was it was an amalgam of people uh, that I was, uh, and and many people have have like, you know, envisioned it as somebody they had in mind specifically. <laughs> you know, I've heard uh, I've heard people say that it was Roy Thomas, and I I didn't have him in mind at all. Um, even though I can see like the haircut is pretty similar in the glasses, but um, it was just from the experience of having to be in at comic conventions with my stupid little Lloyd Llewellyn comics, 
with zero people showing any interest and, and not even just like not interested, but actually like repelled by it, you know, like really like, why do I have to even know about this? This really bums me out. And, uh, and then just to see these long lines for guys doing just the worst direct. And it just, uh, it just filled me with, with, uh, such, uh, rage. It was like a vengeful thing. And so it was, uh, you know, it, he's, he encapsulates everybody, but then of course it was about myself too, because it was, it was very easily a fork in the road that I could have followed and, and become that. I mean, that's why I stuck with the name Dan for, for his first name. It was an important fork in the road for me because I, I like, I discovered comic shops when I was about 12, 13 years old, that collection was already out and and at the shops, I'm getting those first round image comics and things. And to see what looks like pussy mm -hmm. really big on a cover and some <laughs> comics back there it's very attractive to like a 12 year old like like i had to figure out like how am i going to get back there i'm going to put that copy of pussy in inside of like young blood six and take a look just in case there's so much pornography and then maybe being disappointed that like where are the titties this comic is called pussy what what is what is this yeah. I know it's very disappointing. It's a very it's a absolutely I not mean, disappointing, and we do have a video on the channel that everybody needs to go see where we crack open Pusey. No pun intended. <laughs> we may need to do where, a new video because um, I think we mispronounced his name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when Eight Ball first came out, you know, and it was kind of a kind of you know a like a word of mouth hit when the first issue came out. It was a hundred percent because of Dan Pusey. It was not, nobody cared about Velvet Glove or anything like that. It was all, that was the thing everybody was like, everybody had been waiting for somebody to do that. Kind of like a mean comic about, uh, you know, the comic industry. And so it was, it, that's that's really what started the whole thing. Any memories from like the early 90s, that speculator boom? It's something that we talk about a lot on this channel. And I feel like the 90s are pretty interesting decade for comics right going from like giant numbers in the early part to almost collapse uh within a couple years do you remember the 90s is, is anything standing out from that time period any anecdotes from that time period and, and to add to that would would eight ball have benefited from the speculator boom when they're looking for todd mcfarland comics and rob liefeld comics does that is it rising tide raises all ships no i missed all that lloyd llewellyn was almost um, around the same time as uh, as all the Teenage Ninja Turtles stuff, mm -hmm. but it just wasn't it wasn't that. Although when Lloyd Llewellyn came out, there were only I think there were like forty one comics that month or something. So every comic store, oh, a new comic, let's order it. Every comic store would order it. So the sales were much higher than they <clears throat> excuse me than they would have been any other, you know, any time later or before. So it was, you know, it was affected by that to some degree. But I remember, uh, I remember hearing all about the, uh, you know, how guys would do the fake Ninja Turtles comics. There was like the adolescent black belt hamsters and all that stuff. And those, even those would sell 20,000 copies or something. And I remember thinking like, like, that's that's pretty low to slip that low where you're just going to do that to like sell a few comics like that's not going to be sustainable actually when the whole nft thing was happening i guess last year i was telling my son all about the the ninja <laughs> turtles boom and it's felt very similar to that
my first Fantagraphics comic, Anything Goes, number three or four with the turtles on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Gary got a little piece. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Jimmy, you good to go? I, I am, yeah, yeah. Dan, thank you so much for, for coming by. Uh, we're promoting the complete eight ball soft cover. Uh, we did a video on the hard cover, and so many people were like, I, mi I missed that boat. Where do I get this? You have no excuse now, man. The soft cover is out there. Uh, you can get your hands on it. And uh, Dan, thanks so much for coming by, spending a little time with us, talking about your voice. I really enjoy the show. So, what phase you are you on with the uh, with the comic? You you still coloring it? I'm coloring I'm about halfway through. And it's been about a year of color, no? I remember talking to you a while it's been ago. A long time, yeah. It's been quite a while. So for the kayfabe audience out there, that gives you some idea of perhaps page count. You know, like that could be very thick, sturdy, Strathmore 500. <laughs> you, you don't know exactly how many pages, but it takes a year to color. I think we're getting yeah. a big book in the future. Dan, thanks, thanks so much for coming by. Thanks, boys.